As detailed as solicitations and procurement rules might be, protests are a regular part of the federal contracting scene. Protesters can file with the Government Accountability Office or with the U.S. Court of Federal Claims and get wildly different results. We get details of one such case from Smith Pactor McWhorter attorney Joseph Petrillo. And I guess people don't normally think that depending on where you file your protest, you'll get a different outcome. But that's what happened. Tell us, first of all, what this acquisition was all about and who was doing it. Sure. This is an acquisition by the United States Department of Agriculture for property and asset management services in connection with taking care of mortgages, servicing mortgages on single family rural housing as a program they have and they use a contractor to manage their property and assets. The RFP was on a best value trade-off basis, fairly classic situation where the non-price factors were significantly more important than price. Non-price factors were technical capability, including relevant experience, past performance, and the price factor was evaluated for realism as well as reasonableness. Now, those are terms of art. Reasonableness means is the price too high? Realism is, is it too low where the contractor is not going to have adequate funds to perform properly? And after the Department of Agriculture awarded a contract to ISN, a disappointed offeror, Mortgage Contracting Services, protested to GAO, the Government Accountability Office. They denied the protest, but Mortgage Contracting Services then protested instead to the Court of Federal Claims. And as you mentioned, there was a different result there. Let's go back to the reasons they were protesting. What were their grounds for the protest? Sure. Uh, I should also add, by the way, that I'm indebted to Professor Emeritus Ralph Nash of the George Washington University Law School, who wrote up these protests in his newsletter. The two main issues were past performance and the realism of price. Was the price too low? With regard to the past performance factor, the solicitation asked for three references, three contracts, and they had to be completed during the past three years or currently in process. They had to be similar to the USDA contract in size, scope, and complexity. And they had to be specifically related to property preservation and inspection services. So they're asking in a fairly ordinary way, are they recent? Are they relevant references? And on the past performance factor, the awardee had achieved the highest available score. Protester argued that two of the three references didn't meet that standard of recency or relevance in terms of size and scope. J.O. felt that this RFP language wasn't a strict definition, and if you didn't exactly meet those categories, the agency had discretion to determine that, nevertheless, they were references that were available for review and for evaluation. The court, however, looked much more searchingly at the facts. One reference of the three was less than a tenth the size of the USDA project. There was no CPARS data for that reference, and the agency hadn't provided a questionnaire. The other, second of the three references, could not be, well, Parma was not for property preservation and inspection services. There was no record showing that what the contractor did in performing that contract amounted to property preservation and inspection services, which the uh, RFP specifically asked for. So with those limitations, the court was wondering how ISN, the awardee, got the highest possible score. Even if it did a good job on the contracts, were they really the kinds of contracts that USDA was looking for? 
We're speaking with Joseph Petrillo. He's a procurement attorney with Smith Pactor McWhorter. And the question really is, why does GAO look at it in one way and the courts look at it in another way? And what does this say about the whole protest process? Well, you know, the court looked at, as I've said, at the record and didn't find an adequate explanation in the evaluation record. So I think there are two things different here. First of all, GAO is looking at the solicitation and trying to see whether it specifically and explicitly, in GAO's view, keeps the agency from doing what it did. It looks really at what could have happened as well as what, what apparently did happen. The court's looking at the evaluation record. What did the agency say it did? And it's taking the facts in much more detail, I think, than GAO did. And when it drills down into the facts and defines discrepancies, it wants to find an explanation in the record for what's happened. And that didn't happen here. Well, is this something that GAO and the courts are consistent in the way they look at things? Or could it have just been that particular judge and that particular GAO attorney? That is to say, do you know what you're going to get consistently depending on where you file? That's a very good point. At the court, each individual judge looks at things in their own particular way. So the judge is going to differ because they do differ from person to person. At GAO, there is perhaps more unity in terms of the result because they have an organizational structure in which the attorney who's interfaces with the parties during the protest has a reviewer, and that goes up through a review chain before the protest is is issued. So there's probably more uniformity in the GAO approach, but still, the person who's on the ground looking at the actual protest issues, there's some variation there as well. So I have to say that as much as you like to think that you get consistent results, that's probably not the case. And how often in your experience do protesters lose, say, a GAO and then go on to go to the courts? And is that a common occurrence? And is overturning what GAO says by the court, is that common? I think it is not a common experience. You know, these can be very expensive and doing two protests is obviously going to be a lot more expensive than one. In addition, you know, if the GAO decision seems very well based and there's not too much to attack in the decision, one is discouraged from going to court. And it does put you in in a worse position going to court, having lost the GAO protest. But there are instances where the protesters convinced that GAO has done it wrong and they can get a different result in court as this uh, protest shows. And just review for us, do people have to go to GAO first and then court, or can they go directly to court with a protest? There's no requirement that you go first to GAO or even to the agency with a protest. The protester has the choice of which forum it selects. As we've mentioned, if you go to GAO, you're going to be able to go to the court as well if you don't like the result. But with GAO, it's probably where people default because it's a lot faster too, isn't it? And I think the fees are less. It tends to be a more streamlined, less expensive process. It is often faster. The GAO will give you a decision in a protest in 100 days, and it always does that. The courts are expeditious, but they can be slower. All right. Well, good lessons for contractors thinking about this. Joseph Petrillo is a procurement attorney with Smith Pactor McWhorter. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows.
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from sea to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used. 
that you use to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to, to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From Sea to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. <laughs> um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gain the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants 
as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.